My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a retired Command Master Chief Navy SEAL who has spent 26 years of service on his country's behalf. With extensive experience in combat, he has been deployed four times to combat zones such as Afghanistan and Iraq. This is a true patriot who has dedicated his life to serving his country and has made countless sacrifices along the way. His remarkable service record speaks volumes about his leadership skills and ability to handle high-pressure situations with grace and integrity. Apart from his extensive military experience, he is also highly educated, holding a bachelor's degree, two master's degree, and a doctoral degree. He's currently the COO of Scilabs, and he's here to tell his story. Please welcome Jason Torrey. How are you, my friend? <laughs> Thanks, DJ. You, uh, you do me more justice than I deserve, but uh, all is well. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, uh, I hope to uh, to do this story justice because there's a lot of stuff that's going on in it that I really want to talk about. I want to start out with what you told me a long time ago, that your family traces back all the way to the Revolutionary War. So let's talk a little about that family history and what was interesting to me about the family history was, even though it goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War, there wasn't a push by your parents. They never, you know, told you you had to join the military. You just kind of had that drive in you. So let's talk about the family history and then how you got headed towards your career. Yeah, interestingly enough, I was not into the genealogy and following everything back, but my cousin is absolutely a he dials all that stuff in and found our family went all the way back to normandy crossed over uh, to scotland and then eventually into the into newfoundland and the east coast and into canada on the eastern part and uh, some of our family had split and stayed up in canada and other parts came down here and part of that family drawed all the way back uh, participated on the side well, that we know is the, the winning side and uh, the, uh, during the Revolutionary War. And uh, so that's, uh, that's if you, you draw it all the way back there, pretty uh, goes back a, a long ways. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I never really uh, considered that our family had went that far back until my cousin started unpacking it all. It's pretty neat to find out. Well, and, and is this the cousin that along with your brother served in the military? Yeah, so my cousin, he served in the Army, and he was a mechanic. He, he did uh, 24 years, and I think he worked on like uh, big trucks and diesels and all that. And uh, actually, we met up in Iraq. He, uh, he was in Iraq at the same time that I was. I was uh, out of Baghdad on a strike, and we were doing assaults in Baghdad. 
and he was over on Camp Victory, which was a palatial palace compared to what we lived in, which is tents <laughs> and cots, which I dug anyways. I like that kind of stuff. But uh, I was, yeah, I got to hook up uh, with my cousin and see him over there. It was, it was good to see him. And then, and then my brother did uh, 30 years uh, as a firefighter. He's a working as a, as a captain and then as an acting battalion chief and ran the fire rescue and a bunch of um, uh, different kind of specialties out of a place called uh, Edmonds, Washington. He was right there, right off the ferry landing. So he did that. And uh, as you were asking too about like the family and how that went back, yeah, you, my dad served in uh, Vietnam. He was 173rd Airborne Brigade, Precondo Pathfinder. Uh, 1967 and 68. He was at Doc Toe and a few other places. Uh, my my other grandfather served as a BAR gunner in Korea, and he fought all through Korea the whole way, which, holy cow, right? Um, and then my grandpa Roy, who retired as a colonel and then eventually was a, a, a GS-15 up here at Bangor, Washington, he had a permission slip from my grandmother at age 16 to join the army and he went and fought the japanese all through the pacific and was a first sergeant on okinawa and i believe i believe it was the shuri line the actual shuri where shuri castle was at when he got uh shot in the mouth uh took two bullets to the spine and a and a japanese um soldier stabbed him in the leg with a bayonet before he finished him off and then woke up on a hospital ship a few weeks later off of okinawa and then his father, my uh, my great grandfather, served in the 16th Calgary Highlander Division. He came up out of uh, the United States, crossed over at 16 with uh, and lied about his age, and then dropped an R off our name. That's why we only have one R to to get into the Canadian Army to go fight in World War One. And and he fought most of the war until he was gassed. About uh, he got hit pretty bad with mustard gas uh, right towards the end of the war. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to ask something about your family. Um, with yeah. everyone serving like they did, what does patriotism mean to you? And then what do you think patriotism means to your dad and your grandfather? Because I think that it's different eras and it's it all falls under the same umbrella. But I think that there's different feelings about patriotism in each of those generations. Yeah. Boy, that's a great question. And it, it's, it's extremely insightful what you're saying. It is. And it does. My grandfather always used to say, and my, my father says it now as well, but you will never experience the freedoms that I experienced in this country. And the belief in this country, and I believe as a, as a, and one part of the story that I haven't, I didn't tell you about is uh, before my grandfather Roy came down uh, he was actually, he was born in the United States, uh, but he had actually, my grandmother uh, with his stepfather lived in Canada. And the reason why I was born in the United States is my grandmother ran whiskey during Prohibition, <laughs> Canadian whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> so he got born down there and had dual citizenship. But, uh, uh, you know, with that being said, is individuals who has, have truly, and our family, you know, live the American dream. Have, and, and of course, all along the way, you have individuals like friends and family and everybody that is part of a great team, but you can scratch out a great living here in, in, uh, in the United States and realize the great freedoms that we have. And that was one thing that my father and my grandfather and 
and all my, you know, all my relatives have talked about for years about the, the freedoms that we have here in the country and how lucky we were. And I remember, I remember when I was a kid one time talking to my dad and just thinking and, and said, well, I, you know, I, well, I wish you lived in Australia. And he was like, you know, you literally live in the greatest country in the world, the freest country in the world. And he's right. And that, uh, you know, the patriotism piece that you asked about for me and the way I was raised uh, was absolutely, uh, you know, selfless acts of service to your country and the individuals around you uh, and your neighbors. And that's uh, that's what I grew up with. And I grew up not with ideology uh, as much as I felt like I had an education from those individuals who lived it, breathed it understood it and had seen a heck of a lot more than me, which, you know, I didn't realize at the time because you always think when you're younger, you know, uh, more than your dad or your grandpa and whatnot, but, uh, boy, they were, they, they really, that was a big thing in our, in our family. And I'll tell you what, I, I didn't realize that depth of experience that they had and frankly made me, uh, laid a great foundation for who I am today. Well, and, and I want to bring that up in a little bit. There were three kind of contingencies that made you what you say is the person that you are today. A family is one of those contingencies. I want to ask something else about your family, though. With with the generation of the Korean War, uh, Vietnam, those guys didn't talk about a lot of stuff. They didn't talk about what they went through in the war. It was just kind of a different era back then. Uh, not a lot of the exploits were, you know, they had non-disclosures and all that kind of stuff that was going on. When you talk to your dad and you learn the stories of what he did in the military when he served over there, and then you went and did it, did you feel a different kind of connection with your dad once you could realize what he went through in a wartime? Because I think that changes people's perspective on a lot of things. And I speak from a law enforcement perspective. If you haven't been there and seen it, you can't really understand it. But once you do see it, it never leaves your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And just to say that you've got a monumentally tough job. So uh, my hat's off to you. And I can't thank you and other first responders and individuals that are out there every day every day in their families sacrificing for the safety of others willing to lay it down at any time for other people and you know i didn't understand that as well and the in the great contributions and the sacrifices that men and women like you make every single day on our behalf we may be overseas taking the fight to the enemy there but boy you're holding it down back home and i can't tell you how much I appreciate that and and I'm forever grateful. And I'll tell you, um, you talk about my my father not saying anything. He didn't. He didn't have anything to say to me except for you're going to go in the Navy and work on telephones or else. And then you're going to get out and go be a lineman and you're going to get a trade, uh, which being a lineman is legit and it's a great trade. But my heart lay elsewhere. You know, I have the heart of a warrior. It was in my in my bones and in my spirit. And I just went to maps and signed up to be a SEAL. And he spoke to me. My grandfather did a little bit about their experiences. But after I got back from my first combat tour, it changed a lot because we had a lot more to talk about, a lot more to relate to uh, with our stories. And when he would tell something, I could truly understand it. And it, it's true. I mean, 
you know, we created a, a massive uh, connection, you know, as father and son, but uh, boy, that, that bond was even greater after uh, I came out of combat. And I can tell you that even after each combat tour, after each combat tour, you know, it, it, quite frankly, it got stronger and stronger. Well, you know, when you talk about that stronger connection, another thing that I want to point out about everything that I've read about you and doing research on you is you've always, to me, looking through your history, always wanted to be better at every step of your life, better at something. It's not all the same thing. You don't want to just be a better man. You want to be a better student. You want to be a better leader, a better follower. There's all different kinds of things throughout your career. And when you go in the Navy and you uh, do your first assignment where you go to radio man school, you finish that, and then you go to BUDS, was it right then or was it before that that you knew this was the way you were going to be? A warrior can be a lot of different things, but when you actually see it live in front of you, is that when you knew that it was the right decision or did you know it well before then? Well before that. It's a great question. It's like I, I, my son said to me the other day that I want to be like you, Dad. And I said, well, be better than me. You know, I'm, I'm a continued work in progress at almost 50 years old. I look back on things and say all the time I should have and could have done better. Uh, I didn't live up to my ideals. I didn't um, do as good as I could have, right? 2020 hindsight. Uh, but what I can tell you is I, I have never lost focus on, you know, my ethos, my personal ethos, uh, my, my moral compass, and also really truly what at my core I was. And in, to your, to your question specifically, and uh, this is interesting, I wanted to be a, a, a army ranger, airborne ranger, special forces. And a friend of my grandfather's, a guy named Phil Rasmussen, uh, and another friend named Bruce Dyer, both Vietnam SEALs, retired, um, sent me a T-shirt and or a Bud's warning order, excuse me, and a videotape, a VHS. I know you remember those. <laughs> he sent me a VHS. Yeah, I'd update myself big time. Remember those big discs, too? My grandma had those. Oh, the laser discs. <laughs> those were great. You had to flip yeah. them over in the middle of the movie to finish it. <laughs> I just dated myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, sorry, I had a squirrel, but I'm sitting there and uh, I get this thing called a Bud's warning order and a videotape. And it says, be someone special. And I see that it starts off with these guys coming out of a helicopter, assaulting into a target, swimming over the beach, blowing things up, you know, painted faces coming out of the water, wearing blue jeans and firing machine guns. And I'm like, and they're like these, you know, at the time, they're like, this is the toughest training in the world. And oh, by the way, these guys go do all these, you know, crazy missions or skydiving and stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. And that was when I was in sixth grade. And I used to carry that warning order around in a backpack with me. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Uh, and I had a picture of these old Vietnam frogs, beards long hair, the old uh, little boonie caps, they're all dialed in for the jungle. And I was absolutely, that was it. That's what I was going to do. In uh, December 23rd, 1991, I went to MEPS and I signed up at Die Fair Special Warfare to be a SEAL. And I remember calling my dad and boy, he was mad at me. 
because he's like, I don't want you, you know, at 18 years old, knee deep in rice paddies, slinging lead. But, uh, you know, he was happy when I finally graduated, but was proud of me. <laughs> was there any kind of thought in your head, like, um, you, you let him down or anything like that? Or were you like, just trust me on this one. I I'll, I'll do what I need to do. Sheesh, I feel like I let him down to this day. <laughs> so, really? Oh, oh yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I love my mom and dad and they invested so much in to my brother and I, and you know, it's funny. I thought we were the richest people in the world. Um, just the way we were brought up. I mean, we we're hardworking and my parents did well, but, um, I, I owe them everything really. Um, did I feel like I let him down? I don't necessarily felt like I let him down, but I respect him so much and I value his opinion and my mom's and, uh, you know, I, I was scared to death, quite frankly, when I went back, because I was just like, man, I, I, but I told him, I just, I was honest with him. And I just said, I had to do this. He was like, okay, well, you're going to find out. It's exactly what he said to me. He goes, I support you, but you're going to find out. And I, okay, well, he was right. I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, and being a father and I look at it from that perspective. Now I didn't used to, but now I look at that from that perspective and it's almost like he's not mad at you. He's concerned for you, concerned what will happen because he's seen that firsthand. And uh, I, I think it's a hard pill to swallow. I haven't had to go through it yet. My oldest is 17. Now, at the time you joined, 91, you were doing a delayed entry. Uh, you went to boot camp in 92. You're at what I like to term, because I came in in 94, uh, you, you're kind of at that... Uh, place where things are going on in the world but it's more uh low-key in that time frame 1991 92 you know you had desert storm and things like that but there wasn't there wasn't what we've had for the last 20 years and i've heard guys say when they joined that they were worried that they were going to go through all this training uh do all these things and then never really fulfill that dream of theirs of what they went into that job for was there right. any kind of nervousness about you or did you know sooner or later something's going to happen? I'm here and I'll be part of it. Boy, I tell you what, I never thought of, I always wanted to. And I, I, I did in the late nineties, I did like, you know, some stuff, but it wasn't anything crazy. And it was, we were always, we were doing stuff, you know, and it, but it was a pretty big disappointment, honestly, when you knew you had the talent, you knew you could go do these things and you were kind of sidelined quite frankly. And, you know, you don't realize certain things that go on in the system, like politics and the way that uh, national policy, national security strategy, national defense strategy, and all that plays in uh, to decisions that are made. And it's, you know, it, I, there were, there was a point when I was thinking about getting out and, then I decided, well, you know, I really like it. I like the guys, uh, love the community, I uh, love the military. I don't necessarily want to get out. And so I, you know, I was a weapons explosives guy for gosh, what, eight years. And then decided to, I was like, well, I want to go be a medic, which is, you know, go through the uh, 18 Delta Q course. Uh, but uh, when that was going on, well, nine eleven happened when I right before I went ready to uh, got ready to go. 
but I was also at SDVs, right? And I was driving these mini submersibles. So you want to talk about being the redheaded stepchild of Naval Special War and Special <laughs> Operations. <laughs> but, yeah. but I will give you this. Yeah. The assignments weren't bad because you were out at Fort Island and I was stationed in Hawaii at Schofield and I went to dive school at Fort Island and you guys had it. What's that? I see your 25th batch right there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. I went to dive school at Fort Island and SDV one was right down the street and you guys had it pretty good. Now you <laughs> ran by us every morning and called us pussies and all kinds <laughs> of stuff, oh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> The assignments, even though you're the stepchild, those assignments are pretty nice. Coronado, uh, Fort yeah. Island. Uh, so you have those assignments. Does that make up for anything with you having that and and that ability that you could do? You know, it, the assignments never did for me was not. Um, and I say I say this not not having went to Virginia Beach, which I I had thought about doing. The assignments weren't so much the driver for me on a lot of levels. It was really just I wanted to work and I wanted to operate and I wanted to go, go, go. And frankly, uh, I did for a long time. And towards the end, I was burnt out, man. I'm telling you, I just I burned myself out. But if it was up to me, um, we restructured, I guess, in the late 90s, early 2000s, but made it harder to stay at a team when back in the day there were guys were 10 15 years at the same team just stayed and did platoon after platoon and gosh darn the depth of and the uh, of experience and just how good those individuals were was incredible and that's that's what i wanted to do now i loved sdvs you want to talk about a cold miserable thankless hard <laughs> job i've never done anything worse or harder i haven't and I, but I will tell you what a neat mission set. And as far as I'm concerned, completely, well, I, I'm out of the, I've been out of the loop for a while, but completely underutilized and misunderstood, but an excellent platform nonetheless. And it's starting to come into its own, but still just a, what a great job. But I wanted to also, I wanted to get to the SEAL teams. And so that was one reason why I left. Well, talking about the SEAL delivery, uh, all of all of the guys that I've ever talked to that have done missions on there say the exact same thing. It's cold, it's miserable, but it's also very stress-inducing because it is a very well choreographed scientific, you need yeah. to be where you say you're going to be when you're going to be there because you only have yeah. a certain amount of oxygen, you only have a certain amount of things. <laughs> Having that so early in your career... Don't you think that paid dividends later on just for the punctuality being at a point when you needed to be at a point and going through the suck just to get to a mission? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it was, it was an, an amazing experience. And I'll tell you what, uh, I, I mean, I had great mentors and coaches and people that took me under their wing and I was, a, I was a bit of a slipknot for, you know, for for years i was uh just a young guy wanting to to drink and fight and and just do all the things that young men want to do especially in those jobs and spending you know 250 to 300 days a year gone working deployed but i had guys that brought me under their wing and just said no this is you have to make a choice and uh, a guy named 
Dale Wellman was one of those that really pulled me aside. Bill Scullard pulled me aside. These are my command master chief and my platoon chief and eventually uh, retired command master chief uh, Scullard. And Dale was in CWO4 when he retired, but just, you know, helped guide me along. And I'll tell you what, it did set the tone where um, I can tell you that I can be a bit terse and pointed with people. And I'd hear people complain and I would just, especially when I got more senior, like, yeah, you're doing it. I don't want to hear you complain, shut up. And we're just going period. And that, you know, that doesn't always go over too well, (laughs) but uh, I will tell you, you know, in that environment, in the SDV environment, you hold that row and you worked hard. And I mean, it was hard work, long hours, extremely dangerous. Uh, I've done some things that are a bit more dangerous, but when you want to think about just the, the razor's edge that you balance on with, your uh, your mixed gas uh, dive tables, your combat swimmer multi-level dive tables, the things that you have to do with this 22 foot long wet submersible. There's a lot of precision in that. And it, ta- it did teach me a lot, taught me a lot. Uh, it taught me how to suffer, really truly suffer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that pays off too, learning how to suffer because there's a oh, way yeah. to, I, I think you would agree, there is a, there is an art or a science to suffering too, to know in your brain that you can get through it, that it's just a mental block and you have to go through it. So I, I completely understand where you're coming from on there. I do want to talk about and point out something that you said there that you were thought sure. of as very terse and saying, this is how we're going to do it. And this is what it's going to be done. And I don't want to hear it. We're doing it with what you yeah. do now and the differences in leadership let's put aside the MBA and all that kind of stuff and let's take school learning out of it. What have you learned through all those years that you transferred into the civilian world? Because what I've seen just from looking out from my perspective is that shit does not work in the civilian community. Well, being, being very pointed. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of things, Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not, I, I did learn how to uh, absolutely navigate the human terrain, not always successfully, but understand how to engage individuals. I wasn't always like that. You know, I'm a very collaborative person, which I brought from the SEAL teams, listening to every single person and making a decision based off of what they told me and or my highest recommendation to the person that'll make the final decision. Uh, I do it to this day. I do it. And that's the way I am. Then, And and I tell you, that's one thing that I, I have brought to the civilian sector a lot is that type of approach. And those things that I have really truly taken from the SEAL teams, which I would say uh, have, have paid off. Yeah, big time when it comes to people and engaging people and treating them not like numbers, but like human beings. Like I, there's nothing more um, that bothers me when I hear, you know, human capital or uh, something like that, where, you know, that all that is, sounds all great and everything until it's your buddy lying in a metal box and you're sending them home. You're seeing their wives, their kids, their mothers, their fathers, and, and you realize that people aren't just numbers, right? So I, I bring that, you know, that, that's a, what, a lot of what I've learned from the SEAL teams. But I will tell you, I also learned when there's time to just be like, no, you're doing it. I don't want to hear it. 
let's bring in the second contingency of it. We talked about your parents and, and the things yeah. that they did. Let's talk about the great family. That was your second contingency that said that made you yeah. who you were. Um, we've talked a little about your cousin, a little bit about your brother, but what was it about your family back then and still to this day that you have, that has shaped you the way it has? You know, I, w- I told a story at my retirement and what I had discussed during this, when you think about my family, is this. We heated our house with wood, right? The yard was immaculate. The house was immaculate. Everything was immaculate, right? And by all means, uh, our, by all account, I thought, man, we were, were really, you know, we're in high cotton, which we weren't. And, uh, but I didn't know the difference. But what I learned is a, is like my dad, you know, my dad and mom always talked about it, you know, certain things like you are who you hang with. Um, your word is everything. If you shake someone's hand and you say you're going to do it, it has to be done. Uh, you know, the, the other part of that is just that, that drive and work ethic. I say that to my kids all the time. Well, uh, it'll, you know, when you continue to just do it, it'll be done. That's, that's what you need to do. And don't expect perfection. You know, that's my family instilled that as he's from, I don't know when. And I, I remember to get back to that story. I, I tell, told the story about thinking no big deal that my dad's in chest deep water, bucking a massive round off a of dug fur while, you know, cotton ball sized snow is coming down. He's breaking ice. And Sean and I are rolling logs, setting and uh, getting ready to maul uh, so that we could cut. You know, we had popped the logs for dad and he'd come and he'd finish it off and then we'd we'd finish the cuts and stacks. But uh, just that kind of work ethic, that kind of teamwork, uh, you know, it's not about you. And it's about, hey, there's a mission that needs to be done. This heats the house. Uh, We take care of the house so that we can stay ahead of things so that we can you know, enjoy some free time instead of always trying to play catch up and we work together as a team. You know, Sean and I were latchkey kids. I was just talking to my my kids about this because they get driven to a private school every day to go to school. And, you know, I went to Helen Holler Elementary School and Squim Middle School and Squim High School. Great schools. I got a great education, but I rode the bus every single day to school. And uh, and not, and I don't want this to be Tori's talk walking up the hill both ways to school in the snow, sleet, and rain. <laughs> but you asked, and I'm just saying, these are the kind of things I think about that shape me, like, uh, you know, like realizing, like, okay, hey, mom's leaving for work at 6 30 with your brother. You got to be on the bus by 7 30. Uh, and then when you get home, you got to unload the dishwasher and have all these things prepped. And so I learned that whole, you know, that, that work ethic, that teamwork. Uh, that, you know, having two parents and you know, my mom and dad both engaged with everything that we did, definitely not helicopter parents, but, uh, you know, all those kind of things that, quite frankly, shaped me. And I will tell you this, though, um, my brother and I were a bit feral. My mom even admits that. So, uh, but there's some value in that as well. You know, when you throw your army fatigues on and you roll out for the entire day at, you know, 10 years old on adventures teaches you a little bit of independence and stuff like that. But uh, here's what I get from that though. And I want to break some of those things down in there. You talked about walking uphill both ways to school and you talked about you worked hard, you cut the lumber, you put it in and I'm not talking on that level, but do you think that kind of work ethic is gone now? 
Oh, I don't think so. I see a lot of people that work extremely hard. I mean, gosh darn, look at our, our organization, the last organization I was at and the organization I'm at right now. And we got a lot of people that just work hard. I mean, Scilabs has a great team. Touche is awesome. Uh, we've got a lot of great people there. I mean, seven days a week, everybody's on the grind working towards the common goal, working together as a team, willing to share information, working a collaborative. I mean, I... I love working there. I love the people. Uh, quite frankly, I went from one high-stress job. Uh, and I, I remember, oh, I don't want to do startups, and I got into startups. But uh, speaking for where I'm at, I absolutely, uh, you know, I I can't speak for the entire, you know, globe or United States, but I can tell you where I'm at. Uh, we got a lot of a lot of good, hardworking people, right? But But I will also say, that my experience has also taught me uh, some interesting things. And I would say that um, when you think about the individuals that have selfless acts and endeavors for those around them and that understand what, you know, being a team player is all about sacrificing for others, you know, where I was in a community where that was the majority and the minority were in that small group that didn't do that. I'd say inverse in a, a lot of the areas that I have seen. Now, I will tell you, and I'm not just saying this because I work there, but our group, we're very selective about who we've brought on, who we're with, and we have that tight-knit type of crew. But it's, like I said, it's it's definitely, it's it's more inverse compared to where I'm at or where I was at. Let me ask you something from going back, because I want to kind of jump back and forth with your military career. We talked about um, that you had done some stuff, but you were a little disappointed. The first right. time that you see real combat and you know, like, this is exactly what I signed up for. Can yeah. you walk us through mental state, how you feel about the job, how your just your change to the world around you? Because once again, from a law enforcement perspective, after you see this stuff for a while, everybody gets a little jaded. So I want to kind of take a trip down your path that you did once you see the ugliness and the real grittiness and dirtiness of war. Sure. It's interesting, right? Um, you talked about being jaded. Yeah, I got jaded after a while. I tried not to. Uh, it was difficult. The one thing I always stay or I always stayed away from was being indifferent because that is a bad place to be uh, when you just don't care about anything. And what I could say is there were things that I was jaded, absolutely jaded to. And, uh, you know, some of that was, you know, that was brought on by the nature of the war we were fighting, which were individuals that would uh, rape, murder, kill, do anything they could do to anybody just to be, for lack of a better, uh, or, you know, for lack of a better term, just to be complete, you know, thugs, literally and had at most levels had you know no moral compass so the i always tried to maintain a good grounding and, and recognize and realize why i was there and maintain my humanity that no matter where you're from what you look like who you love type of thing that uh, i had a job to do and that job was you know to uphold and defend the constitution of the United States. And that is real, regardless of what people think. And well, it's about oil and that. And, you know, most people, uh, you know, I talk about DC 
quite often and call it Rome because that's what it's like. I mean, it's so isolated and insulated and contained that individuals don't realize, you know, the actual threats that are out there from, you know, state and non-state actors to this country. And quite frankly, from a lot of groups from within right now and what we're currently facing. And uh, when you think of that, it's easy to, to look at this whole thing and, and not, you know, not, not realize that, you know, a big part of what we're doing is, is truly protecting this country, but also while we're over there having the duty to protect those uh, that are, you know, that, that are innocent people that are just trying to have the same thing that we have, which is, which I've found, you know, the majority of the people there that I was around, just that's all they wanted to do is just, you know, they wanted safety for their family for their friends. They wanted to just live their lives. And, and so maintaining that kind of thought process and staying grounded uh, in the reality that was uh, around me was was massive. Uh, now, can I say for enemy combatants, I feel nothing and I have no remorse. I have no nightmares. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's part of what it we do, which is knowing that even me or who else, anybody else that steps on that field at any time could be done training. But the reality is, is um, the majority of those people's resumes read like demons. And I was, uh, had no problems, you know, sending them on to the next life and have no issues with that. Let's talk about radicalism to that. And then I want you to kind of get back in. And the reason I want to talk about radicalism, because you said some of these guys, uh, you know, they're, it read like demons, their, their job yeah. resumes. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, I interviewed Saddam Hussein's pilot. And I asked him at one point in the conversation, when we talk about radicalism and Islam and all of these things that people say they're fighting for in these countries and, the, and that they're trying to hold this true value to Muhammad and all these different things, is it real or is it bullshit just to be able to have something to say you're fighting for? And he said straight up, it's bullshit. It's all bullshit. So I want to kind of get your take on it because you saw it from the American perspective. But for combat tours, you saw it from a deep and personal point of view, too. Yeah. Well, what I would say is, you know, you talk to Johnny Walker, guys like that, and ask them. And they're going to tell you uh, some realities. It isn't to say that people don't have beliefs and that, you know, that people shouldn't have, you know, freedom of religion and be able to exercise that um, in a free nation and society where they shouldn't have fear of having, you know, the beliefs that they desire, regardless of who it is. I, you know, I mean, uh, look at, uh, you know, through antiquity when you're being persecuted for that, well, that shouldn't be the issue, but it also shouldn't be weaponized and whatever that looks like, regardless and we've seen it through the centuries to satiate your own human desire for what you want. It is, that's not what it's about. Right. And I can tell you that, um, there's as much hypocrisy there as there is anywhere in, in the world. So, um, you can't, uh, you can't say one thing and and then do another for instance you know you can't do all these things and it's punishable by death but i'll have a stable of you know eight eight to uh 14 year old boys as you know my you know 
servants, my sexual servants, that doesn't work, or doing some of the things that I've witnessed these individuals do to each other. For instance, I want your food for the winter and you won't give it to me. So I'm going to shoot your house full of RPGs and, you know, you're, everybody's dead, but your five-year-old boys who, who's holding his guts and with his hands, you know, and thanks to the Americans, the army specifically got that young boy and saved his life and the individuals and at Kandahar hospital saved that young boy's life, but because they wouldn't give up their grain and their food for the winter, you know, or, give them their house and then they're executing them in the streets. And then they, they put the videos in the, the souk for everybody to watch and scare them, you know, and then the souk is the, the marketplace. You know, and I'm not saying we're perfect, but I tell you what, that stuff Absolutely. is, uh, it's off sides. Let me ask you another thing. And, and we're going to compare again to law enforcement again. Um, when you're there, did you ever at any point in any of your deployments notice that people, didn't want you around or they were very boisterous about you being around. My question yeah. is always to people because once again, I look at it from my perspective, it's hard to tell yourself over and over. I'm doing the right thing. I'm here for you. Even though you're spitting in my face, how did yeah. you deal with that kind of stuff? Well, what's interesting is you guys are <clears throat> uh, facing very similar, uh, issues that we faced, right? And uh, we face them together, which is, well, frankly, it's a narrative that's incorrect, right? And it's an association game. Bad things equal police, bad things equal the American occupiers. It's words that are used that are weaponized and unfortunately are in, well, they're completely incorrect. The reality is, is that if you look at the data, there's more good police officers and individuals that want to do the right thing and get into that profession or any other profession, the military, like we, I'm doing because, well, that's what their calling in life is. And then that's what leads them to that calling, right? Everybody has it. And there's people that find their passion and purpose earlier than others. But when I was over there, I experienced more good uh, than I did bad, quite frankly. More people were appreciative than in both Iraq and Afghanistan than they, uh, than the ones that weren't. And, uh, you know, you look, you knew in, you know, out in plain sight who the ones were that hated you most of the time. They were either shooting at you or just giving you a <laughs> die like they're getting ready to shoot at you. Right. Um, so, and I'll tell you something else. I don't, I, we spoke about this earlier, but I'll say this. I don't have moral, any moral damage. So I don't wake up in the cold sweats. Why did I do that? Or I should have done this. You know, any issues that I have or feelings that I have that ever cause me any problems are about my friends dying or seeing Americans die or watching innocent people die. You know, those are, those are the tough things that you, you have to deal with. Uh, and and or being rushed through phases of the operations without really truly understanding where we're at because it becomes more of a political ploy and push which then increases the danger to individuals on the battlefield and frankly they talk about the mission well one you hear this no fail mission well, i've never been in a mission planning where we plan to fail number one and number two people are the mission <laughs> 
So without people, there is no mission. Without you know, without individuals willing to execute, there's no mission. And so you you have to listen to those boots on the ground more. And I can tell you this: that um, like I said, we had more people that liked us being there in my experience than we did that didn't want us there. And I would think, hopefully, that rings true for you as well. I, I think it's a, I think it's a little different. And and the reason I say it's a little different is because just like the military, um, we're very low in recruiting. People don't want to do the job anymore. And I'm yeah. worried that that's transferring over into the military. But I almost wonder, and I've said this to a couple people, I almost wonder if that's just because people don't really have that service gene in them anymore. Not that it's been bred out of them or anything like that. I just think at this point in our history, we're more concerned about other things than we are about service. Would you agree with that? You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I will. I think, I mean, what I think, and I, you know, this is the way I feel about it. So this is the way uh, I interpret it is that it's, it's not necessarily that there isn't a gene for service or individuals wanting to, engage in service, I believe that there is, uh, again, it's a, it's a narrative. It's individuals continuing to push a false narrative that, you know, this bad, this good kind of narrative. And that creates problems when you, you look at something and, you know, I, I had a guy say to me uh, that, I, well, we, we both know the individual that this was said about, and then, you know, it was stupid and dumb and just an enlisted guy. And then said, you know, I'm just an enlisted guy. I never made any decisions. What do I know? Um, you know, so there's these biases that float around out there and biases that quite frankly are totally incorrect, but nevertheless, they're there. And it's the same thing that, uh, and it's a, a really this small group of people that, you know, like Ulysses S. Grant talked about in his, and I'm going to paraphrase, in his memoirs is the, the person, and usually the loudest people are the ones that know the, the least about it. And so, and that's not exactly what he said, but my point being is, I think that this continued narrative uh, that's been going on, like I said, bad, good kind of narrative is, is a pro real problem. I mean, look at defund the police. And then now look where we're at right now. Well, we got to get more police, but we can't because we've abused the individuals over and over again. And then we can't get new people in because they're looking at it like, oh, everybody says this is a bad, a bad, uh, you know, job to get into or the military. And so it makes it, it makes it tough. So I think it's, uh, I think that's a big part of it personally. And I, I think you bring up a good point there where you say it's bad and good. I look at it more black and white, and there should be a lot more gray going on. It's one way or the other now. And the problem with that is both sides go, well, if you don't think that way, then you're wrong. There's no gray in the middle like, I can see a little bit of that. Yeah, I can see a little bit of that. But when you talk about the military and police, you know, trying to get people recruited in, I think with police, they look at the riots, they look at what happened to these cities, and that's a big turnoff for them. I think for the military, people look and they go, wow, if I sign up, look what happened for the last 20 years. I'll spend my whole career yeah. doing that. And while there, are, while there are people that want to do that and be police officers, I think that a lot of people, and once again, this is just my opinion, shy away from that. Well, you know, I, I think about a lot of things. I think that 
there was a lot of good ideas back in the day that we're, we're paying for right now and we should try and correct. For instance, you know, bypassing all the, the uh, cities with beltways and loops. And then you have inner cities that start to lose income and then they don't have the ability to continue to fund the cities. Uh, we see a lot of revitalization of downtown areas and also uh, to funnel traffic and commerce back into and business back into these inner cities, right? We're seeing a lot of that. Uh, there was a lot, a lot different policing back in the day, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but you had individuals that didn't ride around in cruisers constantly and patrolled the, potentially patrolled the neighborhoods that they grew up in, right? Beat so, responsibility. Sure. And, you know, the other thing is like with the military, well, um, well with this 20-year war, you know, this generational war. Well, what's crazy to me is instead of saying, well, look, um, there was an insurgency in Germany and a lot of places after World War II, and we stuck it out there. I mean, we heard Secretary Rice talking about, you know, having to really truly stay around longer in these countries too. And she was talking about one specifically, but uh, to stay longer, to continue to nation build, right? The Marshall Plan and all these things. Well, let's talk about that and say, I remember the State Department always used to say the military when, you know, when everything, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. This is nation building. It's a 50 year process, 60 year process. Well, it's like, okay, well, with that in mind, why were you talking about, and you say that all the time, pulling out at 20 years? And why did you cut the funding? Same thing that it happened in Vietnam. I mean, they just started cutting funding. And it isn't to say that the Afghan army or, you know, whatever army was fighting is, was perfect. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying, though, is it was just like, well, if, if we're going to nation build and we know it's taken us this many years to stay in these areas and these other nations and knew it was a long 50 to 60 year plan. Well, why don't we just build it for that? Unfortunately, I'm afraid that my kids are going to have to uh, go back. And if it comes to that, I don't care how, how old I am. Just put me on the front lines and let me go. You know, I'll hobble around and figure it out. At least just be cannon fodder to slow somebody down. Some, so some of these young kids don't have to go. Well, let's talk about that then. You you talk about this 50, 60-year program. You would agree, though, and, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, those were built a little different in Germany and these outposts where we still have active duty bases and stuff. Don't you think those areas were treated differently than how the Middle East, Iraq, and Afghanistan in specific have been treated of building up and leaving a permanent footprint? Well, one thing you think about uh, how you have uh, urban and rural areas and how it's different in, let's say, Afghanistan. A lot of tough country there. A bit more uh, urban and easier access within Iraq, a bit more you know, built up with roads and whatnot. So there's always those considerations. But what I'm just getting at is uh, for all the big heads that are out there making the plans. And if they're saying it's, if they're saying it's a 50 or 60 year process or whatever it might be, uh, maybe that's the structure that they should look at for their plans. And I sat in a lot of planning meetings and I didn't sit in them all. And I wasn't at the, at the joint chiefs of staff making decisions with the president or, you know, the department of defense. But um, I can tell you that, on the ground, uh, there was a lot of good work being done. And, you know, the question was, uh, if we knew that a nation and the commitment to that nation was a long time, you know, we made the decision to go into that country and we needed to stabilize it. Uh, we probably should have planned around that, you know, quite frankly. So 
Uh, and it, look, there's this is there's a lot of things that are difficult, right? I don't have all the answers, but what I can tell you is is that it just seems there. You know, we as we look at these these decisions that were made, we you know we needed to take a little bit longer look at them. I think uh, as a nation, unfortunately, it's it's a long term process when you do this. Do you think that that was considered at all, or that it was a very small? Uh, factor in what we did for the 20 years. And and what I'm asking you is, do you think that nation building idea that the state department is saying, do you think that was factored in or do you think that that was just, okay, yeah, we'll get to that. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. You know, I just, uh, you know, there was phases and there was phases of the operations for us to go through and I'm sure it was in there, but I, you know, I didn't sit down and make those kind of plans. Right. Right. But I just felt I just felt I just felt like pulling out when we did was seemed to be a little, you know, yeah, a little half yeah. baked. <laughs> I, I think yeah. that I think that a lot of people have that same feeling. Speaking of all this, let's talk about the third contingency that made you. And that was your SEAL family. And you call them your SEAL yeah. family. It wasn't the teams. It wasn't anything. You call them your family. A couple yeah. of the things that you have talked about that they taught you was that uh, yeah. excellence is a habit. Let's talk about that. And truly understanding selflessness. And we've talked about it a little bit, but let's talk about those first two points and what the SEALs taught you, because I have a feeling some of those were already kind of in you coming into it. Yeah. I mean, trying to seek excellence as a habit every day, which I fail at for sure, um, was definitely instilled there. Uh, Now, the one thing that I never thought about uh, as a kid was all the things that my parents did for me that applied to the SEAL teams. And we discussed those earlier, but then being around individuals that amplified that and then finding the sense of community and camaraderie and not just in the SEAL community, but in the the military in general. And I have a lot of friends that are in special operations uh, and, you know, the other services that are just awesome. And I feel the same way about them. It, it is something that I, I, it's, it's hard for me to, really put into a short segment. If we were to talk about this, I could talk about it forever. But uh, what I can say is just being around those individuals that amplified uh, your good and your bad and helped you work on your good and your bad that, uh, you know, modeled the way I took the time to not just, uh, hey, whatever new guy, but pull you aside, right? This is the right way to do it. Continue to guide you through it. You know, providing that leadership through the process for people and continuing to stay engaged, help, you know, helping me grow up for that matter. Uh, and, you know, just lifelong friends. I mean, I talked to the guys, I have a real small group of friends uh, from the SEAL teams that I talk to probably every day. Matter of fact, I was just texting one just before we got on uh, the podcast and laughing because we're getting ready to go hunting this year. The third thing that I want to talk about, about the SEALs is, you said that you stand in the wind against those who would deprive life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sure. Let's talk about yeah. it. Boy, I do it to this day. <laughs> uh, it's, an, it's, an, uh, it's a fortunate or unfortunate trait that I have, which is when I see or perceive something that's wrong, I have to, to stand into the wind against it. Uh, you know, And I'm not saying... Uh, that I see everything, but boy, and maybe I misread things sometimes, but when I see that, 
and I perceive it, it's something that I, you know, the kite rises against the wind and that's what I do. I just push back into it. And it's, uh, in the SEAL teams, I always felt like that we were doing the right thing. We, we looked at it objectively. Uh, we, we went in there with the right, for the right reasons and always, always were willing to, uh, you know, sacrifice ourselves if needed. That wasn't the objective, right? Uh, but to protect innocent lives and uh, those to our left and our right, fellow Americans and our, our counterparts overseas. And so uh, it's, uh, like I said, it's still something that's ingrained in me to this day. What do you think is the greatest characteristic you took away from your career? And on the flip of that coin, what's the worst characteristic or part of you that you took from your career? <sighs> Uh, both is, I would say humility. Sometimes I'm, I'm too humble for my own good and it's probably a detriment, but, uh, I would also say that, uh, I was taught a lot of humility in the SEAL teams and throughout my entire career, you know, by older guys, younger guys, and whoever it could be good and bad. <laughs> you know? I've never heard someone say that they use both the, the best and the worst was, was the same thing, but it, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, but you were surrounded by all these people. Do you think it's the same way now? I know how much you, and how great you talk about the people you work with now. Is it the same kind of way? Is that why that humility still hangs around? Well, uh, I mean, I think maybe that's a, a part of getting older as well. Right. Uh, and you know, when you think about Musashi when he talks in the book of five rings and his reflections as a warrior, I think there's a part of you that, especially after the fact that you can look back on things and continue to grow. And I know that might seem like the 2020 hindsight piece, but it's more of an introspection and reflection of yourself, your life, uh, where you're at now and what's helped shape you. And um, I was, I would think that, you know, there were, times that some people may say Tory humble, but confidence and humility are, 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 are different, right? You know, I had the confidence to do a lot of things. I was humble enough to admit that I was wrong or, uh, you know, I would be humble enough to, um, you know, sweep the sheds, so to speak. Um, and which is, you should be, but sometimes, you know, it would be, it would probably, you know, like I said, it would be to my detriment where I probably, uh, even to this day, you know, I've, I've learned that you've got to sell yourself a little bit more uh, when you're going out for a job in the private sector, which I'm not quite used to. Right. And it's like being on this podcast. I'm like, okay, like, you know, do I deserve to be here? Absolutely. So since we're talking about the seals, um, I, I talked to a couple of your friends and I wanted to talk about a couple of specific incidents on your deployments. Uh, you had come down from Ramadi to go on a mission with uh, Touche on uh, Haifa Street. <laughs> yeah. Want to want to talk about it? You want to set it up, or you want me to set well, it what up? Have go you ahead. Heard? How about you tell me about it? <laughs> <laughs> uh So you had come down. Touche said that you had come down to do a mission uh, with him on Haifa Street. Now, was there anything wrong with your your state of physical being or anything like that uh, before all this got going? Well, I needed to clear money. 
So I came down on a helicopter and I had to clear, I had to clear the clear money and draw some money. And, uh, I drew, uh, I had to draw some money to, to take back up that we were using. And, uh, two should ask me to stay an extra day to do a mission with them on Haifa. And I guess, sure. Of course I want to assault the target. And Ramadi was a lot of fun though. Boy, it was fun back then. I mean, it was all, every stuff was going crazy all the time, but, uh, I had got uh, the, the I had got there that night, and Tush was asking me, "Well, why don't you stay stay in our room with uh, J Dub, Johnny Walker, me, and there's another guy in there, the pickler." And and so we were uh, we sat down, and of course, what got broken out? Well, Johnny Walker and had a little bit of uh, <laughs> drinking that night, and uh, you know, I, wake up, I, I wake up to the, uh, the the mosque alarm clock going off. I had to run around all day sweating out the booze and pounding water and uh and we we're going on the mission and they're like well somebody's got to ride in the back of of the gun truck uh, which is open and uh but we'll put ballistic blankets around it i'm like i'll do it so i just had them cover me up with ballistic blankets because i was still pretty hungover i mean i was hydrated <laughs> but i was hurting and so we get out of the car and of course you know that's that thing man i mean when it hits you flip the switch and you get moving and we took off and I remember we're going along and I hear quack, 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 on the ground. And I'm like, you gotta be shitting me. So I, I roll over and I look and this guy's got a pop can stuck to the bottom of his uh, boot, grab, stop, pull the pop can off. Uh, you know, I mean, these are the things that happen, you know, and he's like, quack, and I'm like, take the pop can off your boot. He's a new guy, but, uh, we're moving along and, and we get to the target and the guys go in and, and they all break left and they move left. And I, I came in probably number seven or eight, man. Uh, I would, I, I jumped, I was a train jumper. So I, I jumped forward, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I was excited to get in the house and, and I look and I'm like, Holy cow, that's a, you know, this is a, it's, it was kind of like a weird false wall. It's hard to explain. And I looked and I'm, I grabbed Touche and I just pushed it open and it was this huge room and we just started clearing and we start clearing this massive house, basically just him and me uh, going through this whole thing. I'm sweating, you know, profusely because I'm still burning off the Johnny Walker from the night before. <laughs> and then uh, we go through, I get the kitchen dialed in and I get one of the rooms dialed and then back out, kind of hold and pull everybody back in and then we consolidate and go back through the house. But yeah, I think let me let me see. I wrote it down. Touche's exact words of you were hungover as hell. <laughs> that absolutely, yeah. That's probably about right. There you go. Yeah. Was there uh, was there someone in the teams that you ripped on constantly? That you ripped on back and forth. Uh, someone had mentioned them too. The pickler. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a good man right there. Yeah, there was, um, yeah, him and I back and forth constantly. I used to sing to him before every mission. And I'd dance around him and he'd just get all fired up and mad at me. <laughs> it was just, he's a, he's a good man. He, uh, he hung it out for me uh, when we were in a, I had led a team. So uh, uh, Jocko had had me lead a team to the, the roof and uh, to secure the roof because they were going to pop out uh, of the roof and 
drop TNT bombs on us. They had these little spider holes, which they did. Um, so I did a, uh, I just blew through the, all the way to the roof to lock it down so that they, they couldn't do that. Got out on the roof and, uh, one of the dudes popped up out of the deal. And, uh, and, uh, I'm just sitting there and I had a big beard, you know, yeah, <laughs> my green eyes. And he turns and looks at me and I go, I go, shift <laughs> my worst Arabic, show me your hands. And he, you know, he, ah! and he backs up and falls off the, the roof <laughs> and he goes down and he lands on a lanai like 15 feet down. And, uh, there's a guy that's, uh, he, he directs movies and stuff right now is the guy named Jason Cabell and he had come out there and Jay Bell's like, dude, what's going on? And I look at him like, Hey, <laughs> but they were trying to pop out, uh, um, those spider holes, but, uh, the helos had come in and they were, I had called that we were on the roof and I was, I had, uh, thrown out uh, the chem lights and done all the stuff I was supposed to do. And, uh, they thought we were enemy combatants and in the middle of this whole thing with everything going on in the hotel. And, um, I mean, we were being probed. They were, uh, it was in the Julon district and they were probing us and our positions. And he ran out in the middle of the street and exposed himself and all this stuff, like to, you know, enemy and all this. And, uh, so he could raid the helicopters and yeah, he took care of me, but he's a good friend still is to this day. Uh, it, it seems that you were at, uh, I, I don't know how to say this word, La Posta at ASOT level two, uh, course. Oh. With yeah. Touche. Yeah. <laughs> he said oh. that uh, it was, I guess the, the levels were pretty amped up there. Everyone was pretty nervous. He said that you guys were doing okay. It was a bunch of riding and stuff like that, but yeah. that didn't seem to be a problem for you two, but everyone else was super stressed out in the class. And so in true Touche style, he ate two bags of dried fruit. Oh, dude. Oh, my God, that guy. Look. I don't know if everybody, I think we were all pretty gosh darn stressed out, but I will tell you this, that, uh, uh, definitely some, the majority of the guys handled it pretty good. There was a couple of guys that were, were definitely, they were wired for sound and Tushin to just, you know, mess with everybody like usual. It's like a bottle of colon blow and a bunch of dried fruit goes live. <laughs> and I'm telling you what, it was nuclear and about blew everybody out of the damn, uh, the damn room. One of the funniest parts about it is there was an actual officer. It's one of the only times, one of the few times I've actually, not only, but one of the very few times I've ever heard a direct order in the, in the military or the SEAL teams for that matter. And that was from that officer that uh, Touche was ordered to not fart anymore. And I can tell you that it didn't go over too well with Touche and he right back to him. So the officer wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> oh my God, dude. That was a fun course though. We did a lot of pretty fun things there, you know. That officer was a uh, Skip Vincenzo. I'm not saying that <laughs> 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 oh, I like Skip. Yeah, that's uh Touche said that he was ordered to to stop farting and he just answered yeah. back with a fart. Yeah, he did. Huh? I'm just like, oh, here we go. Yeah. That sounds exactly oh, like God. him. Speaking of yeah. Touche and these stories and stuff, yeah. when you look back on your career and you see these guys that you worked with for so long and and you yeah. spent a lot of time with Touche, uh, and I'm sure there's other guys in your career. You said there's a small group that you still talk to all the time. <laughs> 
Was that the hardest part of stepping away from the military for you was losing that? I mean, it's brothers by then. Is that the biggest thing that you thought or was there bigger things that you had when you stepped away? Um, no, that wasn't the hardest part, uh, stepping away. Uh, one is I didn't accomplish all the things that I wanted to do in the military, but it was a decision that I made with my wife and it was time to go. Uh, and you know, we have young kids. Uh, we started much later. And so, uh, that was part of it. And the other, the other thing, um, you know, when you talk about like, uh, that decision that we made together because she's earned it uh, and walking away is is in saying, okay, well, I haven't finished and done everything that I wanted to do is, is really, um, I just liked the military. I really enjoyed it. I wasn't in, people talk about being institutionalized. I wasn't institutionalized. I just enjoyed it. And, you know, I mean, look, there's a lot of things about it that you always say, well, it could be better. I, I always laugh when I hear people say, well, if this was a business, it'd be bankrupt. It's like no business in the world has the supply chain that the military has. They don't. Uh, they don't have the scope of responsibility and they don't nowhere have the absolute uh, changing and ambiguous environment that is basically creating, you know, middle earth some fantasy world to try and predict what's going to go on. I mean, we do, we're not perfect, but we do a pretty darn good job. And I just liked the military. I liked everything about it. Um, and I honestly would have liked to kept going. I, one of my drivers to that maybe decide to leave was, you know, it, the further up as an enlisted guy, you go, like you make E9, then you make command and you continue to go, you don't get any more pay. You basically max out on pay. And so there was a, a monetary piece of that where, and I'm grateful for what I had and the opportunities, but there was a monetary piece too, where I was like, well, I got to kind of accelerate things in life that I want to do and make a little bit more money so that I can retire like much earlier than 70 or my late sixties, you know, but it was a, it was a hell of a lot of fun, man. Can we talk about some of the stuff that you didn't accomplish? Because when I look at your career and, and everything that you and I have talked about and sent back and forth to each other, I just, I look at it and I go, what the hell could you possibly not have done? I mean, you were a command master chief. You, you were in training, you were in combat, you went everywhere all over the world. What did you not do? You know, I, I think back on things like, um, you know, it's interesting because our deployments, I think my shortest one combat deployment was, like seven and a half months. And my longest was just shy of 11. And you'll hear some guys talk about like doing 10 and 12 and, you know, doing like these two and three monthers and stuff like that, which I, by the way, I think is probably the three and four month rotation is probably some of the, the best way to do it um, for special operations. Cause we're you know, you're doing a mission or two a day or night, if not more. So it's a, it's a high tempo, but you know, um, I would have, I would have, and should have done more combat tours. I should have, I should have just done more. I mean, that's the, that's kind of one of my, my things where I'm just like, you know, I should have, I, I, sh I wanted to, I, I should have done more. Uh, and it was my own fault. I think I could have pressed to go to different teams to go. It just, I was on this, uh, career cycle, um, and was like, okay, well, you, you know, you have to go to, 
this training command. And instead of going, okay, well, no, I don't want to, let me try and go to this other team or stay here. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll go to the training command and then I'll go back to a team. I also would have, uh, I would have liked to, uh, lived overseas a bit, you know, and, uh, we were going overseas, but some stuff had come up. And so we got put sent to San Diego, but it had been cool to been a, to get to, you know, to Europe and do all that stuff and do a few more things. And there's a couple other, uh, commands I, I would have liked to have went to, but, uh, you know, I mean, 2020 hindsight. <laughs> so is there any regret there? I can't, no, no. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, I don't know if I have any, I don't know if regret would be the word, but yeah, I, there's just, uh, I would have liked to, yeah, just, there's some things I would have liked to done, done more. Maybe, maybe there's some regret, but I mean, I feel pretty good about what I did. And, uh, I think one of the things too is, is that you brought this up earlier is that your expectations is always that you're going to be, uh, constantly slinging lead. And when you're not anymore, you know, it's like, oof. and so again, you know, it's that 2020 hindsight. Well, I want to go into that a little more because that was the very first answer that I asked. You know, I was figuring you would say like a school or a certification. But the very first thing you said was I went to combat, but you didn't go enough times. How many times is enough times? You proved oh, you were. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many is enough times. I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that cup never gets full. You know, maybe, maybe it's never enough times until it is. Maybe you just, you know, you don't realize it uh, until it's overflowing. So, and, and you know, look, things happen for a reason. I'm alive and I'm able to be home with my kids uh, and I live a great life and I'm blessed. So, you know, that's that's why I can't say necessarily that it's it's regrets. When you look on it and you got out of the military, we talked about that, that. What what was the hardest thing? Stepping away. Did you ever notice? And I ask this of everyone that comes on the show. Did you ever notice anything of PTS coming out? And and even in because talking to you, I feel like it's more of a survivor's guilt with you. Yeah, I, I don't think I have. I don't have survivor's guilt. Uh, Sure, there's always something. You know, look, I, I I grade papers and I have special agents and police officers and state patrol and border patrol that write about this. I have individuals that work for 911 that discuss post-traumatic stress. Uh, and I think that individuals, you know, my, my brother's a firefighter. I, I hear this too. I think that that's something that we all experience in these type of positions and jobs. It doesn't necessarily have to be because, you know, we feel some type of guilt for survive surviving. Um, I don't, I don't feel that, you know, necessarily. There are things though that um, do bother me. Uh, like I said, one of the things that bothers me is rushing us through phases of operations, you know, like, oh yeah, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. Well, we're not really actually there. Uh, and then, individuals getting injured and, uh, or killed, you know, that bothers me. I feel like, you know, but that's it. You follow orders and you do what you're told. And that's, you know, because you've, you've put your hand up and you said, uh, that's part of being in the military. You've, you've sworn an oath to defend the constitution. Right. So, and the officers pointed above you. So, uh, that kind of stuff bothers me. And like I said, just thinking about, uh, 
you know, some of my friends that uh, have been killed and, and injured, yeah, that, that does bother me. Uh, you know, again, PTSD is, it's something that, you know, it's a very real thing. I think a lot of it too. I mean, you're, you're seeing a lot of individuals working with psychedelics now, and there's a lot of benevolent organizations that are working with individuals, you know, to help basically rewire those, those neural pathways, reset the, the chemically reset your, your brain and other things. So it's a, it's good that the, these different alternative sciences, you know, our medical approaches and sciences are, are coming into play. Absolutely. The hyperbaric treatments, the stellate ganglion treatments, there's, there's a lot of different things that people are using these days. When you talked about PTS, uh, I've always said to me, there's a couple things that stood out and I don't know if it's PTS to me, but you know, sure. I don't trust anybody that that's one thing. I don't trust anybody. Uh, and that's a hard thing to break. And I know that sooner or later in life, you're going to have to, you're going to have to trust some people. And, and I get it. I, and I do to a certain extent when I know them for a while and things like that, but on face value, never. And then once again, the jaded thing comes in where you, you look at, at everything that's happening, how people appreciate the job that you've done. I think that's a thing overall. Um, yeah. Is there anything like that with you where I know we talked a little earlier about the jadedness, but is there anything else that, that sticks out to you about just your service and how people view what we did for the last 20 years? You know, that's a good question. I, I guess I don't ask anybody how they view it. <laughs> uh, is it because you don't care or you don't want to know? I know how we did. I know how we performed, you know, and I served with amazing individuals, absolutely the best I've ever seen. And I can tell you that just great people. And I know how, I know how those people performed and I know what was left on the field. And, uh, quite frankly, we can hold our heads high. You know, we're not the ones sitting and making these decisions on, you know, uh, what it looks like uh, for more troops, less troops, staying going. You know, again, you know, we're, we're, we are the tool and the hand wields the tool. And so I guess I just don't, uh, I feel I, strangely enough, I, I walk around uh, feel, feeling, and maybe it's not strangely, but I just, I walk around absolutely walk around when this is not strange to say, but with my head high and I know what we did and, and maybe the strangely enough piece is I know that what we were doing and what individuals did there, it, it made a difference. Right. And I mean, Iraq is, well, it's, uh, seems to be doing pretty good now. And unfortunately Afghanistan isn't so that that is an absolute problem, but I can say that I hold my head high and every other person that was there should as well. I, I absolutely agree. And and I think the same way with law enforcement. We know from being there what has been put out there, what people have sacrificed and things like that. I, I completely agree with that answer of you. Well, let's talk about your numerous degrees that you've done how they've helped you. And I thought the interesting thing, and I said it a little earlier about you was that you've always tried to be better uh, at things. And you actually point out that you wanted to be a better student and you kind of went at college with like a, a fervor 
to get these done. So let's talk about how you did that and, and how different that was from what you just said. Your experience trumps everything, but this was a whole new world to you. Yeah. Well, I had great people. Thankfully, again, I had uh, individuals that um, invested wholeheartedly in me. And I remember when I was a kid, uh, there's a gal, I don't remember her name, but her mom, you know, your reputation precedes you. You're not going to be anything when you get older. I'm like, well, you're right. I'm still not anything. That's true. Uh, and <laughs> thankfully, my reputation preceded me. So <laughs> hopefully it doesn't much anymore. But well, she was right. I'm, uh, but uh, with that being said is, you know, I had a, again, a great chief that just said, hey, look, you need to go look at college. Think about getting a degree. Give yourself some options. And when you get out, uh, and I'm like, well, dude, I literally was like the less than uh, C, you know, average C student in school. I thought there was no way I could get a degree. That it was like this big, you know, th thing. And uh, well, I went back to school, and lo and behold, wow, school I actually enjoyed it. I actually liked English. Still don't like math. But I do it. Uh, but I enjoyed English and started writing. And then uh, I can tell you that uh, my experience informed my education. It helped me sift through a lot of the shenanigans. And, uh, you know, the uh, teaching my opinion is fact uh, and try to carry a narrative. Uh, then it just inspired me. I tell you, I had a sociology teacher uh, who inspired me um, through her actions, which were they were self-serving and self-dealing to continue my education. And so as soon as I, I went through my bachelor's program and got that done, uh, tracked down uh, a guy who was a, a guy named Calvin Lathan, who's a, still a great friend of mine, a mentor, uh, you know, started off as an enlisted guy and went up to be a lieutenant commander of the Navy in the, the Medical Service Corps and mentored me through. And I went through uh, my master of science program. And I tell you what, you want to hear something funny? I, I got to this master's degree. I'm like, oh, I feel good. Like, all right, you know, it's a tough program. <laughs> so my wife says to me, I thought you were going to do an MBA. And I'm like, uh, okay. So I look at all these different programs and I'm like, well, I want to get a degree from a, a Washington State College. I'm from Washington. So I went to WSU, Washington State University, Cougars. And I started that degree and it was like a bomb went off. <laughs> I was like, what did I just do? I was, holy shit. I couldn't believe it. I was like, what did I just get myself into? I mean, I could not believe it. That It was just it's like a big cold hand smacking me right across the face uh, starting that MBA program. And, uh, and so I think my second semester in the MBA program, I started my doctoral degree. Because foolishly, I was like, well. I mean, that sounds right. Yeah, I'm like, well, three kids, full-time job, and I'm already in an MBA program. I want to get this stuff knocked out. I can bear anything, right? I can put my head into the boat and go. And that's what I did. And so uh, I got through the MBA program. And like I said, the MBA program was shock and awe. I, I was like questioning myself, what did I do? I mean, the amount of coursework and like my buddy who went to Wharton was looking at my books and he just goes, you know what? The, he goes, these are the same books we, we go through. And your curriculum looks oh, very similar to you. You're the talking about difference. the Wharton School of Business. Yeah, yeah. And he goes to me, he's like, the only difference is, is that the people that wrote these books are teaching me. <laughs> he goes, we have the same books. 
then it's your curriculum looks uh, you know the same basically it's just these are the people that wrote the books or te- you know teaching uh teaching the class but uh yeah i did that and i i and it just uh as i continued through the education piece i was like man i really i i enjoy it and i really like where i work now teaching it's a gr- really a great school it's a lot of adult learners and people that are coming back to uh, better their fighting position, so to speak, in uh, the workforce to get promotions, to you know move around in the workforce, redefine themselves, and uh, just knowing that because I've sat for you know, associates of science, a bachelor of science in brick and mortar, and then I've done online strictly and blended, so I've done all three. You know, it's it's tough. The workload's massive. You know, and uh, I just want to be able to work with people. It's not a selection process, but like a training program. And so uh, it's, I just decided to keep going with a doctoral degree and so that I could actually teach and uh, yeah, be more desirable to teach in the, in the university system. Well, I'm glad you bring up the teaching because you have three yeah. teaching points, strategic leadership, organizational leadership, and yeah. uh, business ethics. The first question I want to ask with those things, with the strategic leadership and the organizational leadership, is that a lot from your military career uh, showing its face in the civilian world? Because I think the third one is a mixture of kind of both worlds. Yeah. Well, I, I've <clears throat> my degree is uh, what's considered a professional doctoral degree. Uh, they say it's a scholar practitioner where there's uh, like others that are scholar scientists. You can still do research and stuff with it it's there's no issue with with doing research but uh to answer your question is absolutely you bring i i can cross that chasm with and bring uh, a lot of that military experience and my current experience into it and the reality is is that it, it is theory and concept and application right and it's uh not to say it's perfect in execution Right, but how do you bring that theory and concept to be that scholar practitioner and take some of those to create an amalgamation of all these different things to to hopefully you know grow and become a better leader? It's it's uh, it, it, that stuff is cool. And then the business piece, I just I really like. You know, I was teaching uh, um, operations management, supply chain management stuff, which is okay, but I really like you know, the business ethics, the corporate social responsibility, all that kind of stuff woven in there. I, I enjoy teaching that stuff a lot. Why is that so important? I, I know it seems like a very simple question, but I don't think it's a simple answer. I just think it's, it's, uh, you know, there's been a lot of things that have shaped my thought process on this. And, you know, the last five years, some of the things that I've seen and, uh, the dealings that I've had, I just, I feel it's needed more than ever in business right now. Uh, and individuals, quite frankly, it's, it, you know, it should uh, un- unpack some of the stuff and, and then practice it, honestly. Um, I've had a lot of good, been able to work with a lot of good people, thankfully. Um, but still, there's some things that I've seen in business where I just, I don't know, I just very passionate about it. Let's put it that way. Let's talk about the business. Uh, let's talk about Scilabs, what you're doing there and where yeah. uh, I want to talk about your teaching career, but I also want to talk about Scilabs and how you're yeah. shaping this second chapter in your life. Boy, I tell you, I met a great guy uh, who's a good friend and 
so did Touche, and we got hooked up with him, and he brought us into this world. And I tell you what, uh, what a massive and awesome learning experience it's been. It's been a five years of drinking from a fire hose, and the, the experience that I've gained, and the quite frankly, just the mentorship and the guidance from that that person has been invaluable. And a lot of other people in there have paid, uh, have taken a, a great interest in our success and and helped us along the way and, and brought us up. But it's uh, it's really been, it's been a pretty cool ride. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, the whole Scilabs piece and the things that we're doing there uh, have been just awesome to like continue to engage and find something you're, you're passionate about like I was in the SEAL teams and be able to just continue to, um, quite frankly, serve after service, active service. And, you know, we work on a, um, a lot of just, you know, neat technology from very smart people that are just brilliant. And uh, it's it's pretty exciting to be a part of it. I mean, we continue to uh, do things and continue to work towards some of our uh, our end goals, which are also to help uh, provide more security for our nation and, and our, uh, you know, for the military and service members, you name it for American corporations and businesses. And so, you know, we're, I wouldn't even say we're a small fish. <laughs> we're I just kind of, we're tiny, you know, cause we're, we're so small compared to some of these big companies, but, uh, boy, we got a team that's absolutely punching out of its weight class. If you ask me. Yeah. And I, what I was going to say, when you said not a small fish, you might not be a small fish. You might be a tiny one but you're kind of turning the industry on its head. Don't you agree? Boy, I hope so. I really think we're gonna, uh, we got some pretty neat stuff that's, that's going on. And I mean, trying to head in some pretty interesting directions. Uh, and I should say directions. I should say direction with, with, uh, some of our current products and as other products that we're developing. And it's, it's pretty neat. Um, it, what's funny is I'm such a caveman that, uh, it's like there's things I can talk to certain depths or, or wave top, but when they start going real deep, I'm just like, yeah, wow, okay. You know, that's when I just grab the banana and I'm like, you know, I don't even peel it from, you know, where it comes off the, the bunch. I flip it over, and, you know, which is the bottom where that's the correct way. That is the correct way, but, you know, uh, that just shows you how much of an ape I am. <laughs> well, and what I mean by turning it on its head. Look at because you have an MBA, so let's look at the big picture of business these days. You have a lot of guys getting out of the military, got a lot of guys getting out of law enforcement, first responders, and when they go to these companies, they're putting them as chief of security or chief of logistics. This company that you're a part of, you know, you're the COO, you're the chief operating officer. That that is different than a lot of companies are doing, and I think that your company more than a lot of them is taking those leaps of faith because they think that it, it will pay dividends in the end form. I hate to keep using that as a phrase, but it will pay off for them in the end. Don't you agree with the way the future looks on stuff like that? I think you don't need an MBA. You don't, quite frankly, you don't need a college degree to be good at anything. Um, I think industry should start really thinking about that more often, right? that uh, is a degree really required. I mean, there's some things that yes, it is, right? Uh, but 
really the majority of everything is on the job training anyways. And there's some concepts and theories or mechanics of something that you have to actually put your hands on and do. Uh, you don't walk out doing brain surgery right out of medical school. You, you, you know, you got a, an internship and then you get a residency and from the residency and sometimes you have a fellowship, right? And I can tell you that, uh, like anything, if you find the right person, you find the right people, the motivated people, individuals that are, you know, wanting to engage, they're going to engage and learn. I mean, I had, I got offered a job by Amazon sorting packages on a, on a, a line in a warehouse, which there's nothing wrong with that. But, I, uh, the question that was asked was like, the guy goes, well, do you, you don't need one, but do you have a degree? And I said, did you read my resume? And, uh, then it was just dead air. Right. And so, uh, I think my whole point to that is that, uh, you, you know, you, you don't need, you know, you don't need a degree for all this stuff. But I also think that companies are leaving a lot of things on the table and a lot of great talent out there, you know, through some of their hiring practices and whatnot. And I can tell you that um, as you as you look at transitioning out or you're, if you're getting out early from the military or any law enforcement or whatever you might be doing, if you're going to retire and whatnot, you would absolutely be value added within an organization. It isn't. You know, and you don't have to be in the security part. There's pieces and parts of it that you can go into and learn and grow. And I don't think, you know, you need to start at the bottom. It isn't that unless you really want to. Um, you come in, you can come in there and, and they, they should really truly recognize the fact that there's a, a huge talent pool of highly motivated individuals. Now, what I would say is if you're going to get into startups, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's... That's like being on deployment every day. So it's it's a lot of work, uh, but it's rewarding. And I and quite frankly, I enjoy it. One kind of last question that I have for you. Yeah. In everything you've seen, you've you've been at the top of your game. You've been the highest enlisted. You've been a SEAL. You've been a very special operator. You have a doctorate now. You've seen college. You've seen the business world. Say you got a time machine and you go back and talk to young you. What's the advice you're going to give? Hindsight, we've talked about it all night, 2020. What do you tell young you? Oh, boy. I'm thinking about a lot of things right now. <laughs> Don't date her. Don't <laughs> spend your money on that. <laughs> Don't get in the car, idiot. <laughs> well, uh, well, I would tell myself to start investing all this money more than I did and buy a house earlier than I did. Uh you know, uh, I did okay, but uh, I could have done a lot better. Um, geez, what would I tell my young self? Uh, uh, you know, I don't know if I would tell me anything because it would change the trajectory of my life. And I sure like where I'm at right now. You know, I might sit on the sidelines and just watch me because it, it'd be like just watching a clown show go on and be pure entertainment. But uh, I don't think I would tell myself anything. I, Quite frankly, I, I like where my life's at right now. And uh, any little change could have changed the trajectory. I may not have, may not be here talking to you, doing these kind of cool things or having my family, my kids. And uh, I couldn't think of, you know, somebody had said, uh, and it was uh, one of the transition programs that Tush and I had went to. And they said, the thing that you're most proud of, and you can't be your kids, and your accomplishments in life. And I'm like, Mike, but they are. 
They literally are. It's like being a dad is like the coolest thing. It's what's the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. And the fact that I started way late and they're, you know, they're young, they're real young, but I'm here with them every day. It's, it's a blessing. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's probably my greatest accomplishment right there. My kids, things I'm most proud of my kids and, uh, you know, all these, all this other stuff that I did is just white noise. It's just, you know, just things to do. <laughs> with, uh, for the last question, we're going to do the converse of it. If you're you looking forward to the future, do you see any of this happening? Could you have imagined any of this as younger you? No. <laughs> no. No. Hell no. Uh, no. Uh, man. Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I mean, you know, I, uh, I mean, it was literally just taught. Uh, you asked me a question that my buddy like literally asked me like two days are pretty close. Like, no, I could not have seen it. Uh, and even where I'm at now. And quite frankly, I don't know where time has went. Uh, but, you know, I'm not saying I'm not proud of the things that I've done. Uh, I'm, I'm more proud of the, the the fact that I was able to be a part of such a great organization, had such a great family, have great friends, uh, you know, that uh, I have a successful uh, relationship with my wife and my kids, you know. Uh, those are the things that I'm, I'm extremely proud of, but, uh, yeah, I, boy, I don't know. I will tell you this, that it's been good though, uh, after retirement and being able to start doing some more of the things and getting back to the things that I did as a kid, like bow hunting and stuff. I sent you some of those pictures and you want to talk about just cherry on the top of life right now in my life. That's, that's it. So getting back into hunting and doing all those things with my buddies and my, well, my boy and whatnot, it's just been pretty amazing. And I would say that even travels as far as saying you moved back home. I mean, back to your home state yeah. and stuff. So, I mean, I, I guess yeah. in a crazy sense, your life has really come full circle. It has, you know, uh, what's really even more incredible about it being full circle is, you know, I left California to get away from the, the restrictions and the state law and all the things that are oppressive and it's all following me up here. So that's trying to come full circle too. I'm going to have to move. I'm going to have to follow. I'm going to have to buy a house next to you. We could be. Neighbors. Yeah. There's a, there's, there's always Texas. So uh, that, that's what I tell everyone. There's always <laughs> Texas. I think I'm that should be our new state motto. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not afraid to launch. I mean, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. come full circle too, but, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, coming back home, it's been great. Shoot. My mom and dad live right behind us, aunt and uncle right in front. My brother's right over here. And, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good. If kids are getting too rowdy or bothering me. I just send them out back to the gate, go see grandma and grandpa. I think that, uh, you have an amazing story, Jason. I'm so glad that Tush introduced us together. Uh, can you tell people where they can find you or what your company is doing right now by social media, sure. websites, anything like that? Yeah. Uh, Scilabs.io. You can go look on there and then uh, we're on LinkedIn and Twitter. So you can find Scilabs on Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, and just follow us on there and look. And I'm on Instagram, but I'm, I think I have like two followers. So I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty up there right now. I, I am not a social media guy, unfortunately. No, uh, no way. Yeah, I, yeah, I just, uh, but uh, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, you can find me, you know, 
just like my name is spelled. But yeah, check the company out. It's great. And um, I tell you what, you know, one of the other things that just a shameless plug, but just some of these benevolent organizations that individuals are uh, investing in has been something that's been extremely good for me to be able to to be a part of like beyond the brotherhood like you see marcus capone and and individuals like that that are investing in veteran health through uh, psychedelics and treatments like that the navy seal foundation uh yeah the navy seal fund uh, navy seal future fund you see all these uh different organizations so being able to be a part of those two which i've been able to donate and work with has been pretty good as well so if you want to know more about SEALs and our, that community as well, those are some great organizations to look at and, and engage with. There are a lot of people really stepping up these days. Uh, Dave Winkley, another SEAL, is doing Tier 1 Outdoors where he's taking people on hunting guides and stuff like that. I mean, it's... it's a, you know Dave? Wink? That's awesome. Yeah. The Winks. I love Winkley. He's awesome, dude. Yeah. I just saw a yeah. picture of him. He's up in this area, I think. Alaska, uh, yeah, right? he, he, yeah, he goes to Alaska on, on one of the trips every year. It's up to Alaska and, and yeah, we've got a bunch of guys down here. Johnny Sotelo's down here in, in, um, in yeah. Texas. Uh, I'm working with, uh, Mac Alexander now. Um, there's, there's a bunch of guys that are, uh, out yeah. here, like, like doing these organizations to get this word out to people. And it's, sure. I think it's absolutely amazing. I think that we're taking huge strides in the military law enforcement. And I don't even think it's those organizations as a whole, like law enforcement as a whole. I think it's individuals that are really bringing it to the forefront for people. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it is. And those individuals continue to, you know, like Jimmy may is doing beyond the, uh, the brotherhood. And uh, there's another guy, if you want to talk to a guy, the great guy is, is Jim. He's just, uh, he literally was a nuke in the Navy and became a SEAL. So uh, went from enlisted to officers, got an incredible story. Um, absolutely just unbelievable guy. But uh, yeah, I mean, these individuals uh, like, you know, Danny Cirillo is another very good friend of mine and he does Spartan 7 Adventures, but also, uh, you know, works for these benevolent organizations like same thing with Drago and all those guys too is doing a lot of good work, you know. Yeah, I, I it's nice to see out there. I think that it's really starting to be, um, it's becoming a real talking point. Before, I think it was just a little chatter, and I think it's become a real talking point in helping get these guys in that second chapter of their life. And 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 that's one of the reasons I started the podcast was people I just saw they would retire after these careers, and then they would just be dead, and they had no mission. They would say they had no purpose, and. And oh, there's wow. a whole nother life that's out there. And I'm so glad that that's getting out there to people now hearing stories from guys like you and wink and Mac and all those guys knowing that it sucks and you step away from it, but there's a whole nother world waiting on you. Yeah. You know, you brought up something that was interesting. And I, when I did my doctoral dissertation and study is you brought up purpose, which is a big thing. Somebody brought that up to me. Wow. Cause I was like, well, why does this emotional intelligence drop off? Why do these things happen? And, um, retired uh, two-star general uh, who was the associate dean at the school just was like purpose did you ever think about purpose and i didn't and you know what when i you think about it now and i bring it up all the time is yeah i think guys are you know think it, i don't know for sure but i just feel like like you said they're losing that sense of purpose and, you know it's absolutely 
you know. Well, there's guys like you out there that that uh, are really guiding it back, working with these foundations and stuff. So, I, I'm like I said before, I'm so appreciative that Touche put us in touch with each other. And um, everywhere that you can be found, of course, you'll have your own web page uh, on my website with all your pictures. We'll add the links to the organizations that you want to add links to, and people can go there and find out a lot about you. Now, you guys know where you can find Jason. Here's where you can find me. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. But the one-stop shop for you, it's going to be dtdpodcast.net. You'll find audio, video, pictures that Jason sent me, his bio, any link that you want to be able to find him. Make sure you go there, dtdpodcast.net. Now, don't worry. We need to talk about our sponsors, Mac Belt and Police Coffee. The Mac Buckle consists of 100 plus grams of unbreakable stainless steel. It's engineering, designed, and assembled and machined in the USA by USA Built Machines. It's backed by a multi-generational warranty, and it's expertly engineered to combine modern precision for rugged use. Everyone knows who it is. It's Mac Alexander. He's a retired Navy SEAL, and he's given this corporation not only the toughest belt and the toughest buckle on earth, but he's putting veterans back to work after they leave service. So make sure you go by MacBelts.com. Pick up a belt. Pick up a buckle. You won't regret it. Now let's talk coffee. Please coffee. It's an officer-owned business, and it's dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who knows what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause, and this is what we talk about every week. They get back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And let's talk flavor. I'll start with One Ranger. It's the newest flavored coffee you're sure to love. One Ranger's flavorful, medium-bodied coffee with a smooth and sweet pecan flavor. Pecan coffee is probably the best combination in the world. And this pecan's rich, sweet, nutty, and buttery flavor cuts through coffee's natural acidity to give you a smooth and satisfying coffee experience. So make sure you go by policecoffee.com. DJK10 will give you 10% off your order. And swing over to macbelts.com, pick you up a belt and a buckle. Remember, it's a new year. It's time for a new belt. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the story. Catch us on the next one. That's Jason. I'm DJ. We're out of here. See ya.